0: Good morning. morning. I miss you guys when I'm not here. I'll tell you that I do. We miss you too. Thank you. Thank you. Let's, Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father, thank you so much for the love that you've given us, the truth you revealed to us in Christ. Thank you for all the interventions you are constantly making to oversee and guide in our lives. And we pray that you'll join us today as we study, that we can see where we are in history and the purpose you have for us, that we can be effective lights in this world to carry a message that will... Bring people back into harmony with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Today we're doing lesson four in the quarter of the three cosmic messages, and the title is Fear God and Give Glory to Him. And let's jump into Sunday's lesson, and the first paragraph reads, The purpose of the book of Revelation for our generation is to prepare a people to be ready for Jesus' return and to unite with him in giving his last day message to the world. Revelation reveals the plan of God and unmasks the plans of Satan. It presents God's final appeal, his urgent, eternal, universal message for all humanity. The three angels' message, the last message of mercy. How would you describe that? If we were to be able to get a hold of worldwide media, every website, every uh, uh, digital platform, every TV and radio station, and read from the Bible, word for word, the three angels' messages so that every single person in the world hears it read to them, have we taken the three angels' messages to the world? No. Have we done the work the Lord wants us to do, and then the, the final events and the Lord will come? Is that the message? No. So if we read it, though, from the Bible, in a language they understand. How is that not taking the three angels' message to the world? What are we missing? Gospel. But the gospel, somebody said. But doesn't the message start with the first angel? Came with the eternal gospel. Relationship. We're missing a relationship. We're missing the demonstration, the example. So that I like missing the demonstration example. So the point is, we would take words to the world. But words simply are constructs that convey meaning. If we don't explain or demonstrate what the words mean, like the word gospel, good news. Okay, What's the good news? We still have to explain all that so they have an understanding of what it means, right? Is it possible to take the three angels' messages to the world in such a way that we advance Satan's kingdom rather than God's? Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Is this the message of... The three angels. Uh, We would say the three angels' message includes the eternal gospel, wouldn't we? Yeah? But is there a false gospel that Jesus warned about going to the world? Could somebody use the three angels' message as a platform to take another gospel to the world under the umbrella of the three angels' message? We say the three angels' message is a righteous by faith message, if you've ever heard that. One of the founders of the Adventist Church actually wrote that the Three Angels' message is, is the righteous by faith in verity, in surety. Yes. Some time ago, you mentioned about uh, the last message you read. The last message to go to the world is the character of Christ. The, the truth about God's character of love. Christ Object Lessons, page 314, I think that is. Yeah. Yeah, 314, 315. That's exactly right. So... How would you explain righteousness by faith, then? If the angels' message is righteousness by faith and verity, it's the sure message of righteousness by faith, could you take a righteousness by faith message to the world that actually promotes Satan's kingdom rather than God's? Under the umbrella of angels and righteousness by faith. Let me give you an example. If we present this, righteousness by faith is the legal declaration of being accounted righteous by God because you've accepted the blood payment of Jesus to be applied in your heavenly records so that the Father will declare you to be legally righteous even though you remain unrighteous. Is that the righteousness by faith message? No. 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 Do you understand that is the message that's commonly taken? Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us this is what righteous God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that substitution. We believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that He became human and took the sinner's place for the purpose of redeeming mankind and eliminating sin. But but notice what happens. God made Him, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that here, here's the so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The message I just read to you is, well, if you accept the payment. That is applied in a legal, mechanical way in a courtroom scene in heaven upon a registry book, and you get legally declared to be righteous even though you remain unrighteous. The Bible says we actually become the righteousness of God. And if you add in the other metaphors of Scripture, we get a new heart and right spirit. The law is actually written in our hearts and minds. We have circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. The heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh is instilled. We die to an old way. We live in a new way. All the metaphors of Scripture are actually teaching that sinners are reborn with new motives and desires and and attitudes that are in harmony with God and no longer in rebellion against God. They become. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ's record is applied to my book in heaven. That's not what Paul said. But Christ lives in me. This is the true righteousness by faith message. People become the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Tim. Yes. I think this word faith is oftentimes misunderstood when its meaning is much more along the line of trust. Trusting enough to do what God asks. Exactly right. The Greek for translated in the New Testament faith is the Greek word PISTIS Pisis. It's translated faith, it's translated belief, it's translated believe, is translated trust. One word and it actually means to have confidence or trust in. So in our English, we would actually say better through trust. We trust him. We trust him with our lives. We trust him with our secrets. We trust him with the intimacies of our hearts. We trust him with the ugliness of our sins. We trust him with our guilt. We trust him to heal us. Just like when you go to the doctor, and maybe you go to the doctor because you've got a problem um, of something that you've done. You've been doing drugs, and you know it's illegal, and you've been using dirty needles, and you've got endocarditis, infection of your heart. This happens. I've seen, over back when I was in med school and residency, I've seen people like this. Psychiatry, I don't see that too much anymore. But I've seen people, endocarditis from dirty needles, infection in the heart. Now, which was the better approach for that patient? Do they want to be taken into the magistrate and have a prosecutor present all the evidence of their crimes and be judged? Do they want to be taken and have fevers they're, they're nauseated. They, they know they're sick. They don't feel good. Do they want to go in before the doctor and also have to let the doctor know all the things that they've done? And the doctor will examine them more deeply than the judge. The doctor will get out ultrasounds and MRIs and look into the deep secret recesses of their, of their being to find everything that's wrong. Do they want the doctor to do that? And what's the doctor going to do when he does that? Bring a remedy to cure and heal. This is the gospel message. David said, search me and see the wicked way in me, creating me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. But when we present it as a legal model, well, I don't want him to see me because if he sees me, then he's required by law to punish me. So instead, I know, even though I've got this bad infection in my heart, even though no, it's all, and it's my fault because I was doing drugs and I was using dirty needles and I know I'm sick. When the doctor comes in, I don't see him as a doctor, I see him as a judge. So as he comes in to examine me, I say, here's my older brother who has lived perfectly and never done anything wrong. Please examine him. And anything right and healthy you find about him, write that in my medical record. Does that get you well? That's much of Christianity. That's what it's commonly taught as the is the pre Advent judgment. God looks at Jesus. And if you accept Jesus, he finds all the goodness about Jesus and writes it in your record. The better way to understand the heavenly records, if you actually read widely in Scripture and other writings, what's recorded in the heavenly records are the names. Names are symbolic of character. That's what's there, your individuality, your personage, your character. And if you want the heavenly record to change what's written about you view it very much like you want your medical record to change, and your medical record right now, it's got on there that you have this disease or that disease. If you want the medical record to show you don't have that disease anymore, what has to happen? You have to take a remedy and have the disease eradicated. And so the way our heavenly records change is that we accept Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in, takes what Christ has achieved, reproduces in us, we become the righteousness of God, and our record shows how sick we were. Our record shows that we've been one to trust. Our record shows we've opened the heart. Our record shows the spirits come in. Our record shows that a new heart and right spirit's been reproduced. The law of God has been written within us. That's how you change the record in heaven. This other legal thing that came out of Rome is designed to give people a sense of security. They can feel good about themselves because they've gone to church on the right day, or if they've taken the right sacrament, or they've made the right confession to the right priest who's authorized to hear their sins. They can do all that, but they're not actually having their heart changed. Okay, let's see. I hit some buttons and made my notes go all over the place, I'm hunting for them again. <laughs> Have you ever gone to any Daniel and Revelation seminars? (laughs) (laughs) And how is the Daniel and Revelation seminar presented to you? Is it presented to you in a way that you hear anything legal in it? Is it ever presented with legal mechanics in it? Is ever presented with a judiciary, a heavenly judiciary, a, 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 an authoritarian being who has to oversee bad deeds and, and have to get proper payments, and, and ultimately in the end he's required by law and justice to use power to punish unrepentant people? You ever heard things like that? And if that system were true, if it were true that God is required by law and justice to use his power to inflict punishment upon people, then where do we need protection? Where's the, where's the harm coming? It's coming from God as punishment for sin. Does the Bible actually teach that? Some people think it does. I've got some text here I'll go through in a moment where it seems to say that. Keep that question in mind because I think we want to bring some of those texts out. But i would tell you, the Bible says, those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature reap destruction. Galatians 6.8. Uh, sin, when full grown, brings forth death. James 1.15. The wages of sin is, but the gift of God is, eternal life. eternal life. See, what comes from God is life. Sin severs our connection with the source of life, and the only outcome from that is death, unless reconciled back to God. Second paragraph It says, the the Greek New Testament word for fear, in Revelation 14, 7, is phobio. It is used here not in the sense of being afraid of God, but in the sense of reverence, awe, and respect. It conveys the thought of absolute loyalty to God and full surrender to his will. It is an attitude of mind that is God-centered rather than self-centered. It is the opposite of Lucifer's attitude in Isaiah 14, When he said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of the congregation at the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, I will will be like the most high. I think this is well said. I think that the quarterly has done a great job here of describing in this context that fear does not mean terror or dread or to be afraid, it means awe, reverence, admiration, and respect. Question, same week lesson, different day, We're going to look at at Friday first, and we'll come think it's Monday. See if that same emphasis comes through in this paragraph, Friday's paragraph. Do you get the same idea that that fear means awe and reverence, or does it mean something else in Friday's paragraph? Think about the incredible power of God, the one who created and sustains the entire cosmos. We can barely grasp the idea of the cosmos. How then could we ever begin to grasp the creator of it? Think about how much greater and vaster and more powerful he is than we are. And this God will one day judge us. How do these facts help us understand the idea of the fear of God and what it means? Do these series of questions lead to the immediate conclusion of awe and respect and admiration? Or do they introduce maybe some fear and terror and dread? Do you know what idea is embedded in these questions that's causing the fear and dread? that God will judge us. That's exactly right, which is the idea that God's law functions like human law. There's a judicial magistrate waiting to rule guilt or innocence and determine lengths of inflicted punishment. That's the idea embedded, and that leads to fear. Therefore, we we must be afraid of God and afraid if he were to find... And I've seen this perverse idea come through and harm so many people i've seen people worry is there some sin i've forgotten to confess that remains on the books that i'll be required to get punished for because i didn't ask for the blood of jesus to pay for that sin so now salvation is not based on god's grace it's based on how good our memory is you know i, did, I didn't come to salvation until i was 23 i might have sinned when i was seven and i didn't remember that sin And I haven't asked its forgiveness and expunging, and the payment be made. It's still in the books. Do you think that's how heaven works? No. No. But this is—I've had people talk to me as clients, living in fear that there might be some sin they haven't recalled to confess. Where does that come from? The false idea that God's law works like human law. God is the creator; He builds reality. His laws are the laws upon which reality function. Life is built. And deviations from them result in pain, suffering, and death unless we are restored to harmony with the law. That's why the law is put back in us. So if we read this same paragraph, and I will paraphrase that paragraph as if it was written through design law instead of imposed law. Think about the incredible power of God, the one who created and sustains the entire cosmos. His laws are the protocols reality is built upon. We can barely grasp the idea of the cosmos. How could we ever begin to grasp the creator of it, the one who sustains it all and holds it all together in love? Think how much greater and vaster and more powerful he is than we are. Think of how this all-powerful God has been using his power to hold at bay the ultimate destructiveness of sin and to bring healing to his creation. Think about how this creator God will one day examine us and diagnose uh, diagnose accurately everything that is wrong and will use all his power to cleanse heal recreate and restore all who trust him to his perfect design but for those who refuse to allow him to heal them rather than using power to torment them he sadly lets them go to reap what they have chosen separation from him the source of life and therefore eternal non-existence how do these facts help us understand the idea of the fear of god and what it means Do you see how the wrong law concept contaminates the Bible, perverts the meaning of the three angels' messages so that people can, under the umbrella of the three angels' messages, actually take Satan's version of God to the world? And then we can look into Monday's lesson. Do you get the message of awe and reverence and respect, or do you get something else in Monday's lesson? How do Jesus' words hear And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The lesson shows a version of the Bible, if you notice, leave that up there for a second, a version of the Bible that capitalizes him. They capitalize that. Do you understand? That's a translator's... There is nothing in the the Greek that suggests that this is God. It's just fear him. It's left open to the reader. To, who is the one that destroys the soul? It's in, it's, if you have the legal model, then God is the one who does it. Therefore, it's God. So we capitalize that and we infer or teach that you should be afraid of God. Be afraid of God because he will torture and kill you. But hey, God only wants you to love him. But if you don't, he will torture and kill you. So love him deeply. Or else. Or else. It just doesn't work. And that's what you get when you... And, and the root lie, again, over and over. This is... We, if we read Scripture through the assumption that God's law works like human law, we, we draw these false conclusions constantly. So how I rendered that in the remedy is... Don't be afraid of those who can destroy the body. They cannot touch your psyche, your mind, your individuality. By the way, the word for soul in the Greek is psyche. Remember, you get psychiatry. It's your individuality, your your personhood. They can't touch that. Rather, be afraid of unremedied sin, which destroys both body and mind and results in eternal destruction. You say, be afraid of him? That's the person who refuses reconciliation. That's the person who refuses God's grace. That's the person who hardens their heart against the Holy Spirit. That's the person who says, I prefer sin, To righteousness. Who should you fear? You should fear yourself. What's Ellen White say? The greatest battle every person has to fight is with themselves. That's the one you should fear. Fear the one who will reject the mercy, grace, and reconciliation freely offered by God. That's the one who will destroy your soul. And that's you and me. Fourth paragraph. The essence of the great controversy revolves around submission to God. Lucifer was self-centered. He refused to submit to, to any authority except his own. Rather than submit to the one upon the throne, Lucifer desired to rule from the throne. Put simply, to fear God is to place him first in our thinking. It is to renounce our self-centeredness and pride and to live a life wholly for him. Any thoughts about this paragraph? Is there anything in here you read you go, There's there's just truth in this paragraph, but something feels off. Something doesn't quite seem quite right. There is truth in this paragraph, but there's something off too. And what's off is the essence of the great controversy about submission to God or the type of submission to God. See, does God have the power, if he so chose to exercise it, that for any time in universal history, including when Lucifer started his rebellion, but today too, any time, God has the power to force everyone into submission, yes or no? Yes. 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 So if it's only about submission and not the type of submission, God could have had that instantly by just coercing and forcing every need about. So it's not simply about submitting to one with greater power, with greater authority, who can punish, to intimidate. That's not what it's about. Understand, Lucifer in heaven never alleged that he had more power than God or that God was not powerful. That was never the allegation. The allegation was you couldn't trust God with the use of power. He was an abuser. He didn't care about the welfare of others. He was selfish. He manipulated This was the ultimate allegation. They were against not his possession of the power, but his use, which goes back to character, his methods. What would happen if God did use power in this way? Now, do we have some examples in history? The Bible is a a book of both revelation and history. Do we have some examples where God did use power in mighty ways? The flood, that was a mighty display. If you read, if you value um, Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen White describes that that even Satan was terrified there was so much power on display there. It frightened him. Big power. And after the flood, all God received was human loyalty and admiration and, and love and respect. There was no building of a tower because they didn't trust him, was there? How about... Ten plagues of Egypt. Was this a display of power? And all God received after that was love and loyalty and trust and friendship. How about Mount Carmel? Was there power at Mount Carmel? And didn't all the people say, The Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God? They submitted to His authority. And all that happened after that was love, loyalty, and faithfulness to God. God cannot win his case on what he's trying to do by the use of might and power. That's why it says in Zechariah 4 6, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works as the Lord. What the Lord wants, he wants our love, he wants our trust, he wants our loyalty, he wants our devotion. He wants our understanding. John fifteen fifteen. I don't want to call you slaves because slaves don't understand their master's business. Rather, I call you friends for everything I've made, learned from the Father I've made known to you. He wants our understanding, devotion, loyalty, agreement, not simply submission of a slave. So God doesn't use power in this way to punish sin. Then what was he doing? I, I, I probably should explain that for those who haven't followed us very long. Because it looks like God was using a bunch of power to punish sin. What is the punishment for sin? Death.
1: death. death.
0: Which death? First, first death from which we have a resurrection or eternal death, no resurrection. Which is the punishment for sin? Eternal. In the Old Testament, has anyone died the eternal death? No. They all rise, either in one of two resurrections. So, so that is not the punishment for sin. Then, then what's going on? Genesis 3.15, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God promised. A Messiah is coming. The seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent's head. And the whole Old Testament narrative is the story of God working to bring the promised Messiah. So the species human can be saved and the sin problem can be eradicated from God's universe and Satan working actively to obstruct that problem. I mean, that, that, that promise. That's the whole Testament narrative. And at one point in human history, every human heart except one in his family hardened against God. There was no, if that one family had been wiped out at that point, there's no one left on earth God can work with to bring Messiah. So God intervened, put the whole world to sleep in the flood, kept open avenue for Messiah. This was not punishment for sin. These were all therapeutic actions to keep open avenue and fulfill his promise that Messiah is coming. That's what you see in the Old Testament. Has Christianity consistently presented God in the way we're presenting it here? Is it sometimes stated, maybe more often than sometimes, that God is required and in fact does use his power to punish sinners? Last week I was listening to a Christian radio station and a very passionate young lady came on the radio and gave a plea for people to give their heart to Jesus because Jesus has taken away God's punishment for sin. Jesus came and took God's punishment for us. stated on the radio. What did John Baptist say about Jesus, the Lamb of God? The Lamb of God who takes away the punishment of his father. (laughs) (laughs) The Lamb of God who takes away the (laughs) sin. If you imagine sin as a lethal disease... We're all terminal, dying, dead in trespass and sin. He takes away the death-causing condition, the death-causing problem. But Satan twists it and makes God out to be the death-causing problem. The punishment coming from God is the problem. We have to take away what God will do. We're going to unpack this a little more. But the Bible does seem to say this, and then we'll have texts. So here's, here's a couple texts where people will suggest that, the, that I'm wrong. Hosea 8.13, they offer sacrifices giving, given to me, and they eat the meat, but the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6-8, through 8. the Lord will punish men for all such sins as we, have, as we have already told you and warned you, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live, holy lo- live a holy life. So they will point to this, they say, see, you, you, you're a denier of scripture. You don't believe God's word. Do we just take the Bible, read it, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. The people who want us to believe that God punishes sin, there's the text, don't question. Then throw them Deuteronomy 14, take the tithe, buy fermented wine, and come celebrate for the Lord. Give wine to those who are perishing they may forget their misery. (laughs) So we can take the tithe, buy wine, go into the inner cities and give it out to the people who are perishing because we want them to forget their misery. Let's have a new inner city ministry of (laughs) of wine distribution. (laughs) Well, they will say you have to interpret that. Well, don't we have to interpret this? So punishment, yes, there's a punishment for sin. This is not the question. The question is what method, system, or means does God use to bring punishment? That's the question to be asked. Is God's method, means, and system no different than human legal systems? Or does he have a means and method that is quite distinct? And it goes to which law lens? You see God's law working like human law, rules require external enforcement, or design law. Does God bring punishment when he lets people go, to reap what they would, what what that course of sin naturally does is that how he does it. Well, let me tell you, God does bring punishment, and that's how he does it. God brings punishment, and, and get your mind around this idea; it, it's going to turn everything backwards for you, from the way the world teaches. The way the penal system teaches is that God brings punishment by the exercise of divine power to bring it. In reality, God brings punishment by ceasing the use of divine power. The cessation, or this, the stopping, he, he uses his, his divine power to hold at bay what sin naturally does. He is the intercessor, interceding with the destructiveness of sin. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, he said in Eden, I will put enmity between you and the woman to the serpent. He's telling Satan, I'm going to put enmity, uh, I'm going to put a desire in their heart, so they won't naturally align with you because a sinful human and a sinful angel would naturally align. But I'm going to put a desire for good. I'm going to bring a a conviction of sin. I'm going to have my spirit work in their hearts so that they have a longing for something better. I'm going to intervene with my power so they are not comfortable in your kingdom. I'm also going to send my angels to work as as a protective hedge to restrain and hold back your power. We see this in the book of Job. He was restrained. We see this in in Elisha with the angel armies around. And I'm also going to send my son who is going to intervene in the natural course of what sin does. Sin causes death. My son, who knew no sin, will become sin to destroy the death-causing principle and restore my life-causing principle in humanity. I'm going to intervene with power. My power is used to save, not to hurt, not to harm. This is how God uses power through all history. In the example of the flood and the the plagues of Egypt, these were all uses uses of power therapeutically, like a doctor uses a scalpel. And we find this both recorded in the history of Scripture and described by the prophets of God. So you find in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18... The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by uh, by their wickedness. The wrath of God, the Greek is active present tense. He's not saying the wrath of God one day will be revealed at the judgment when God punishes. That's not what he's saying. The wrath of God is today, right now in AD 60, being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men. And he goes on to then describe, because, and why, why does it come? Because they suppress the truth of God. They preferred images made with their own hands uh, the, the, to, the, to the knowledge of God. Five times he tells you they exchanged the knowledge of God for a lie. And therefore, three times in verse 24, 26, and 28, he tells you what God does. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. This is God's wrath. And, and he describes what they reap when God stops using power to hold at bay what sin does, they reap a terrible pain, suffering, destruction in their bodies, in their minds, in their characters, in their families, in their communities. We're seeing it in the world today, too. And so this is out of a book called The Hard Sayings of the Bible, and it's specifically commenting on these, the wrath of God in, described by, in Romans one, eighteen through 32. It says, the human condition which Paul describes in Romans 1, 18 through 32 is not something caused by God. The phrase revealed from heaven, heaven is a typical Jewish substitute word for God, does not depict some kind of divine intervention, but rather the inevitability of human debasement which results when God's will built into the created order, that's design law, is violated. Since the created order has its origin in God, Paul can say that the wrath of God is now constantly being revealed from heaven. It is revealed in the fact That the rejection of God's truth, that is the truth about God's nature and will, leads to futile thinking, idolatry, perversion of God-intended sexuality, and the relational moral brokenness. The expression God gave them over or handed them over, which appears three times in in this passage, 24, 26, and 28, supports the idea that the sinful perversion of human existence, though resulting from human decisions, is to be understood ultimately as God's punishment which we, in freedom, bring upon ourselves. In light of these reflections, the common notion that God punishes or blesses in direct proportion to our sinfulness or good deeds cannot be maintained. God loves us with an everlasting love, but the rejection of that love separates us from his life-giving power. The result is disintegration and death. This is exactly right. And Paul uses that exact same expression. And I had a uh, email conversation. I'm in the middle of it with a uh, uh, person locally in this community who is, uh, takes some umbrance with what we present and, and doesn't uh, uh, like this idea and was suggesting that what I'm saying isn't correct. And so I, I sent back Tim what I'm going to share to you right now. Paul actually says in Romans 4.25, this exact same Greek expression of God gave them over or God gave them up applies to Jesus in Romans 4:25. Sadly, all the translators don't translate it the same. So your English will lead you to think maybe something else is happening, like delivered over. They'll say Jesus delivered over for our sins, rather than given up for our sins. But if you want to look at what God actually does to the sinner, how God uses power to deal with the unrepentant sinner, then you have to look at he who knew no sin that became sin for us, who took the sinner's place at the cross and ask, what did the father do to his son? Did the father exercise divine power, dispel divine power down upon his son to cause pain, suffering, and death? Or did God restrain and pull back and let his son go and stop using divine power? Which happened there? There was a cessation of divine power. And he who knew no sin reaped what the wicked reap in the end when God stops intervening to hold at bay what sin does. And so if you want an evidence-based thinking, you look at these examples and why the scripture is there, and you can see God reveals he is not the source of death. You can also get that same evidence if you look over in Gethsemane. He fell down dying. He would have died in Gethsemane, except God used power to do what? He sent an angel to revive him. God didn't use power to cause death. He used power to sustain him because more was to be revealed than simply how sin separates from the source of life and results in death. The whole scenario around the trial and what the Jewish people were doing, those people who were working so hard and, and so fastidiously to be Sabbath keepers and be good Sabbath keepers, to get Jesus off the cross in time to keep the Sabbath, and who were keeping the whole blueprint and were, and were doing all the things and tithing the, even out of their garden and all the stuff they're supposed to eat and the right foods, dressing in the right way, doing the right sanctuary service it was revealed to the unlooking universe, you can obey the right rules. But if your heart hasn't been renewed, you're God's enemy and you'll kill him. If you have a legal Christianity, claiming the legal payments, I I brought the right sacrifice just like the script told me to do. I had the blood applied to the altar just like it's supposed to. My legal responsibilities have been fulfilled. Then you kill the son of God. While you claim your legal rights. So in in harmony with Romans 1.18, and also with what the Hard Sayings of the Bible, which is published by University Press theologians, wrote, one of the founders of the Adventist Church, named Ellen White, wrote the following Selected Messages, page two thirty five. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstance that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. That's design law. Remember the example of respiration, the law of respiration. It is a law that if you want to live, you have to breathe but you're free to transgress it. You can tie a plastic bag over your head and transgress the law. But if you do that, the wages of that transgression is death. You cut yourself off from the law of life. Next quote, Great Controversy, page 36. God does not stand towards the sinner as an executioner of the sentence against transgression, but he leaves the rejectors of his mercy "...to themselves to reap that which they have sown." That's Galatians 6, eight. You sow to the carnal nature, from that nature you reap destruction. "...every ray of light rejected, every warning despised or unheeded, every passion indulged, every transgression of the law of God, is a seed sown which yields its unfailing harvest. The Spirit of God, persistently resisted, is, the, is at last withdrawn from the sinner, and they are left no power to control evil passion of the soul and no protection from the malice and enmity of Satan." So, functionally, what's happening? Is God using power to help sinners battle sin? And if they insist on the sin and reject God, how does God use power? He withdraws it. He stops using. It. Get your mind around this. This three angels message that's been taken by certain people to the world has been taken under the umbrella of an imperial dictator God who uses power to punish sin. It's Satan's version of God. This is why the world isn't lighted. So your uh, acquaintance that you're having this email conversation, I'm assuming is some scholar here in the community, and me, a humble, unscholared person, can sit mm-hmm. here and read these texts along with you, and writings from Ellen White, and come to the same conclusion that you are. What is this person's problem? education
1: <laughs> too much education
0: when Jesus chose his apostles who did he choose read in Desire of Ages she explicitly says in Desire of Ages he chose humble fishermen who had not been contaminated or corrupted by the schools of the prophets twice the sons of hell Jesus said you search the world for a convert and when you find one you make him twice the son of hell as you are the, the, uh, when you have understand how our human minds work the law of exertion is one of God's laws If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. So if you exercise your abilities to learn and then not just learn, speak, write, maybe write books, articles, maybe, maybe lecture on a certain philosophy, not only do you become a deeper believer in it, your ego and pride is caught up in it. You want to now go on the public record and say, for the last 40 years in my books, and I, I spent 20 years writing an exegetical uh, study guide for, for the Adventist church, and it, and it teaches this theological construct called penal legal substitution, and it takes my life work. Uh-huh. And now, do you want to admit it was wrong? Uh, mm. yeah, so, well, outside yes, grade, 20 years ago, <coughs> I started Paul had to do that. <laughs> Paul, Damascus Road, yes. yes, had to do that. He had to admit that not, not God was wrong. I not the Old Testament was wrong. His understanding of it all was wrong. And he had to take And then once he did, he reset it all. All that knowledge of Scripture that he had, all the traditions that he had, became valuable once they were reset in the new setting of Jesus Christ and design law. And I'm going to tell you, the critical, the critical thing, Uh, It's in my notes somewhere. I'll probably have to repeat it because it'll come across my notes. But the critical thing the Adventist church needs to accept in order to finish the work is that God's law is design law. As soon as they accept that and, and get rid of this imperial penal human law model, then all the things will be reset into the right setting. Have you ever read Ellen White's writings where she talks about it has to be reset in the right setting? This is the key. If you, if you read Wiley, read our stuff. I'm, I've got the quotes in many of our, our articles. Ellen White describes that the, the controversy in heaven began over a question of God's law, God's law and it will finish over the oh, question. same question. An Adventist who have accepted the lie that God's law works no different than Rome, a set of imperial rules requiring the rule giver to punish rule breakers, he, read those quotes, a question over God's law, and it'll end over the same question as a question over the Sabbath. Yes. It's a question over the Sabbath law. Really? So in, in heaven, when Lucifer began his rebellion, was it a question over Sabbath? He was, he was advancing Sunday? No, no. <laughs> no, Sabbath didn't even exist yet. Sabbath wasn't even created yet when he's... A, so it was not a question over Sabbath. So the, the end law c- question cannot be a Sabbath question. doesn't mean the Sabbath's not involved. But the Sabbath is simply part of a larger question. A larger question over law. I guess the way I see this person at least reaching out is hopefully they're questioning, hopefully they're open to the Holy Spirit. No, no, they're not reaching out to inquire. They're reaching out to educate me. Oh, okay. <laughs> gotcha. <you>. Okay. <laughs> so we could pray that they're open to the Holy Spirit. Sure. Leave it, because Holy course, Spirit can change. N- we, n- n- we should pray for that, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Why are church members also so adamantly against it? She says, why are some church members adamantly against it? Well, there is certain appeal to the legal model. I was actually recently um, conversing with a a young person who's considering joining the Catholic Church. What what would be the appeal of of Roman Catholicism? There's a certain appeal. Structure. 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 Rules. Rules. You just submit. that's, that's, That's what they have. They have structure they have rules do they also have authoritarianism? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what would structure rules and authority? what would that offer that would be appealing? Security. Security. A false security yes. i 'm not responsible. Yep, right. All I have to do is what the rule maker told me to do. And if I follow this and do the sacraments and follow the right rules, I can get rid of my existential anxiety, my fear of judgment. I can't be judged because the church and somebody who represents God, who's authorized to hold the keys of heaven and hell has told me I have salvation and I'm going to believe that so I have security in their legal system. That's what it, that's what it offers. It offers, and, and do you think any type of, Christian legalism doesn't do the same thing? Do you think the legalism of paganism doesn't do, bring your offering, pay your debt, claim the blood of Jesus to pay for your sins? Yes. Yeah. Well, the problem is when, when they go on to confess, instead of saying, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned, they say, bless me. You can't bless somebody who's sinning. So, in other words, they just keep in the same vein. They know they can go out and keep living the same lifestyle and all they have to do is come back. Well, that's because in the legal system, whether it's Roman, we're going we're to go late today, guys, I'm just going to you right now, because you, you've got me going off on a couple issues here. I, and I'm going to have to tell some stories to expose this. Um, I saw a, a debate between a, uh, a Protestant pastor and a Catholic priest over the Eucharist. I don't know if you know, in the Catholic concept, when you take the Eucharist, and you swallow it, something called transubstantiation. It turns into the literal flesh of Jesus as you take the, the, the wafer. And the, and the Protestant pastor was criticizing the Catholic priests, telling them that, uh, that the Bible says in Hebrews that, that the Son of God was crucified once for all. And that in the Eucharist, you're crucifying Jesus over and over again. And the Catholic priest says, oh, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. See, in any sacrifice, the Catholic priest says, that there are two, two phases of a sacrifice. There is the immolation phase. That's when you actually kill the animal or in this case, Christ on the cross, when they're actually harmed and killed. And then after the animal's harmed, killed, or Christ was killed on the cross, then there's the offering of what was sacrificed. Christ only died once. But every time you take the Eucharist, in there, and this is what was explained, then you're asking Jesus to go to his father and present to his father his sacrifice, which happened only once, but now is being presented to the father to pay for our sins. That's how they, that's how they, and and you know what the Protestant pastor said? Oh, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. Jesus died, and when we confess our sins, he does not go to his father. And and when, after he died, he presented his sacrifice to his father at that time to pay for all sins, past, present, and future. And when we confess our sins in the future, when new sins that happen in our life, we go, Jesus goes to the father at that time and presents his merits to his father to remind the father that he's already paid for our sins. Now, what is the problem with this? Can you see the problem? It's a very uh, g- wide-open, glaring, giant problem that neither one of them see. What is it? Sure, that works, <laughs> God, the <enemy. laughs> they both serve a God who requires someone to give them a blood payment so he won't harm them. And they're arguing over the question of whether it's the sacrifice being presented now or the sacrifice was presented in the past. We're just reminding him now that it's already been presented. It is an absolute demonic deception that keeps the Protestant and the Catholic world arguing back and forth over, this imper- over, over, over how we influence the punishing God to not harm us. And it's not the gospel, and it's not Christianity. It's paganism. And that's what, and that's what we see happening. And that's what happens when you have the imperial pose law, and that's what's, that's what's appealing. It gives you a sense of, I can continue to live in my sin, but I don't have to fear punishment for my sin because somebody else took my punishment. That's why it appeals. So we're still talking about this question now. Submission. What kind of submission does God want? Does he want our submission? Can he get the submission that he wants, the submission of, of your love? Can he get your love, your loyalty, your trust of him with every fiber of your being, your devotion? You're settling into the truth so you can never be moved from that loyalty. Like Job was so settled. No, no trial, no tribulation, no horrible thing, no theological friends, no griping wife <laughs> could cause him to break his trust with God even if God were the one to slay me, I would still trust him. That can, only can he get that kind of trust from you by threatening to kill you if you don't give, give it to him? No. It's voluntary. It That's right. To voluntary. So understand the entire penal legal system of salvation taken out under the three angels' message causes people to distrust God. It prevents people from achieving what God wants. Because it teaches them they have to have an intercessor to stand between them and God to protect them from what God... And so most people end up more afraid of God who's trying to save them than the sin in their life which is killing them. That kind of settled faith can only come when you know that you know that you know that you know and you've experienced that God loves you no matter how it appears, no matter what your circumstances are. Yes, you have to have that personal. Yep, yeah, you, can't, you can't take the testimony of another for your personal experience with God. That's right. But that testimony of another, you can see something is different. You can see the change. You can see their peace and then you can pursue that same relationship. Yes. yes. One of the problems with looking at it from that standpoint is that, that fear might fix the problem today, our sinful problem, but in a million years, ten million, million years, do we know that God will never revert to this angry uh, fixing of something? I'm, I'm done with you. I'm going to suggest to you, if you understand the law of liberty, you can never get loyal love by threatening. Whenever you threaten someone's freedom, you actually damage love and you incite rebellion. And if they stay because they're afraid of the consequences of leaving, then over the time they lose their individuality and they become empty shells, what I call shadow people. This is what you see in cults. This is what you see in in, in much of, of the communist countries, uh, where, where they're very ter- totalitarian, people don't think anymore, they just accept what they're told. I don't know if you read the article about five, six months ago of a, of a woman who came out of North Korea, and after being here for six or 12 months, she had an epiphany. She didn't realize, she lived her whole life in their, and she, what she realized is that their leader, their fat, obese leader <laughs> is not starving like the rest of them. Oh, yeah. She believed he was starving like everyone else even though she saw these pictures of this obese man. She could not process what was right in front of her eyes because she was so conditioned to accept the authority of, of, of what she's told. She had no individuality. She could not reason. She had to accept and understand this is what's happening in our society today. Anybody read my blog this week? Yes. I encourage you to, to check it out. One's coming out next week, which is going to follow up on it. I'm going to give you a little, head, uh, a little advance on it then, tell you about it. The one uh, coming next week um, happens to be stimulated by what I saw when I was in Washington, D.C. last weekend. Smithsonian Institute. Two, two events happened that made me write the blog for next week. And The title for the blog next week is Evidence in History, Evidence and history, or authority and wonders, or claims and wonders, claims and wonders. Authority and history, excuse me, um, evidence evidence in history, or claims and wonders. And and the idea is, what do you base your understanding of reality upon? Evidence, history, history, the Bible is a book of of historical experiences that... uh, Or do you base it on claims of somebody in authority? Or, wow, some wonder. And what triggered this for me were two things. One, uh, we we were heading towards the the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. And in my blog, you'll see pictures outside with a sign. National Museum of National History. And I typed in my, my search engine... Uh, the uh, the Google Maps, and what came up in Google Maps was the Natural Museum of Natural Wonders <laughs> of Natural Wonders, and I thought, Natural Wonders is that the same as Natural History? <laughs> history and Wonders. History requires you to actually study history to understand historical facts, what's actually happened. Wonders are designed to wow you. And then the other thing that happened, maybe you saw the news article, there was a University of Pittsburgh professor who told his, his students in class that there is no difference between a human male and female skeleton. Oh my God! He told his students this. No difference between a human male and female skeleton. The students laughed at him I've got the reference and I quote the article The students laughed And he was shocked Why are you laughing at me? I have a PhD I'm the authority You don't have a degree You haven't actually studied You have to believe me because I've said so You laugh at that, right? That happened during COVID I'm Dr. So-and-so I'm the head of this agency or that agency. I have authority. I've said it. Yeah. This happened in the dark ages. I'm the Pope. I'm the priest. I reference a, a real story that happened to me about 13 years ago with, uh, when I was having active discussions with a senior pastor in this community. One of the associate pastors said to me, you have no right to question him because he's the Lord's anointed. Oh he's the senior pastor the senior pastor has spoken who am i to question except on authority it didn't matter if you had truth or not truth that's not irrelevant that's not relevant caiaphas has spoken jesus you have no right to question he has the authority here Do you understand the problem the world is working to dethrone human reason God says, come let us reason together. Our ministry, come and reason ministries. Exactly. Come let us reason together. Says, We're here to develop our critical and the mature those who have developed by practice, the ability to discern right from wrong. The world is working hard. And this is the core, I'm going to tell you, the core agenda to the trans movement, the transgender movement has nothing to do with human rights or individuals struggling with real heart life problems. We should be compassionate to any individual struggling with any of those questions, you would not want to live in their shoes. It has nothing to do with them. It has to do with the... In fact, I'm going to tell you, most of them are being used in a very ugly way by people of power. And the people of power are using it for one primary purpose, to destroy your ability to think. Mm -hmm. To accept rulers in authority who who give you and tell you what you must think. For instance if it is true that there is no such thing as male and female. And you understand that this is a most basic concept that even animals can tell the difference. (laughs) It is. Animals can tell the difference. A rooster and a hen are not the same. A ram and a ewe are not the same. And everyone can tell that difference from the earliest age. There is actual biological maleness and biological femaleness. God designed us, male and female, and the two in unity come into love. This is part of us. But, but if you accept this idea that, that you can't use your own God given senses and intelligence to tell the difference between what's male and what's female, if there is no such thing, then there is no objective standards left in the world at all. And therefore, you can never call anybody in power into account. You can never hold them accountable for their actions. If they have power and they say it, that makes it so. And that's the goal. A world of, of lemmings and followers who just do what the person of authority... Very much like the Dark Ages and the Dark Ages Church and the irrational stuff that was done under the so-called umbrella of religion back then. But now we have a new religion. And it is a religion. It's a cult. I'm telling you. This, the, we are living in a world in which cultism is a form of... of of um, earth worship on the greeny side? Mm -hmm. Let me read a couple of quotes to you. And I'm going to share these two quotes to document what historic Adventism, what the founders of the Adventist church expected the three angels' messages to be and what we were to do to take, what message we were to take to the world. And I'll leave it for you to decide if this is the, the, the central message you see coming out of the official publications and pulpits of the Adventist Church today. This is um, Desire of Ages, page 22, so I don't think that's uh, too far uh, afield. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God, that the gloomy shadows might be lightened and the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. This could not be done by force. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. His character must be manifested in contrast to the character of Satan. The, this work only one being in all the universe could do. Only he who knew the height and the depth of the love of God could make it known. Upon the world's dark night, the sun of righteousness must rise with healing in his wings. Speaking of Jesus. And then Desire of Ages, page 759, to show the, the again, the use of how God uses or doesn't use power. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. <coughs> Except during the time of the judgment and the white right, right throne, and God is required by holy instruction to use power to... No, it doesn't say that. Only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love, and the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. Truth and love, prevailing power. This is the message. I'm going to tell you, I've never heard this central to Revelation seminar that I've ever attended. Have you? We've taken the three angels' messages to the world to advance Satan's version of God. And, I, and, and, if, and if church leaders want to challenge me on this, I'm open. Let's have a sit-down, roundtable, broadcast live on the internet discussion about the, the, the means and methods. Let's give a little church history. 1888, the question came up, what law in Galatians? There were two sides. It's the ceremonial law. It's the moral law of the Ten Commandments. Ellen White did not weigh in at the committee. She said there's just, the, the attitude here is too hostile and too unchristlike like mm-hmm. for the Holy Spirit to work here. She came down on their, their hostility toward each other. But eventually she did answer the question. I'm asked, uh, I'm asked about what law in Galatians is, it, is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And she said it is both the ceremonial and the moral law of the Ten Commandments. But in this passage, the Apostle, uh, the Holy Spirit is speaking through the Apostle, especially of the moral law of the Ten Commandments being added. This was very upsetting. The Adventist Church had an opportunity to move away from legalism toward righteousness by faith, but instead the leadership doubled down on God's law is imposed, a system of rules he enforces legally, and they shipped her to Australia. Get her out of get her out of headquarters. And our church doubled down on it again later with the books on a question on doctrines where they uh, taught, uh, in, in, in the book Question of Doctors written to, to make sure the other evangelical Christians accepted us into the body of, um, and stopped calling us a cult, which they did. We're accepted as an evangelical church now. But, but what was necessary to do that is that we had to accept the penal legal model of salvation and that Je- all sins, past, present, and future, were placed on Jesus at the cross and were punished by God at the cross, and therefore all sins were re- taken care of at the cross, which effectively does away with the sanctuary message. Because the the true Advent message is that Jesus took the sinner's place at the cross, overcame in the sinner's behalf, and procured the remedy necessary, and the species human was saved at the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. If we have one panda alive, pandas are not extinct. Because Jesus lived a sinless human life and rose in humanity We will always have a sinless human in existence in the person of Jesus Christ. This species human was saved in the person of Jesus Christ. Simultaneously, he procured what was necessary for any other specimen through history to partake of his achievements and receive through the Holy Spirit the victory of Christ. And it's no longer I that live it, but Christ lives in me. And we can also join him in eternal life. It's a free gift to all who want it. But that gift requires application in the heart of the believer via the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the sanctuary message. Jesus went to heaven, and he said, it's good for you that I leave. If I don't leave, the comforter won't come. When the comforter comes, he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what I hear. He's going to take what is mine and make it known to you. He's going to take my victory and make it known to you. The penal legal model rips all that away. We have legal declaration in a courtroom in heaven We are not having transformation of heart. We are not becoming the righteousness of Christ. We're being declared the righteousness of Christ even though we're not. And our church has wandered in the wilderness ever since. The first paragraph of Monday's lesson says, these passages reveal linkage between fearing God and keeping his commandments. Fearing God is an attitude of reverential respect that leads to obedience. Heaven's urgent appeal is for those saved by grace to be obedient to God's commandments. Grace does not free us from obeying the commandments of God. The gospel sets us free from the law's condemnation, not from our responsibility to obey it. I'm not condemn. I still have to obey, but what if I don't obey? Then am I condemned um, wait a second, uh, how about if I, if I confess today and I've gotten forgiveness, but then I walk out and, and somebody does something mean and I get angry and I curse them and maybe I punch them. A- am I now under the law and condemned? until I run in and confess again? Have you ever lived that life? Why is there no condemnation? Design law, there's no condemnation because all the sins were paid, paid by Jesus. And God can't legally condemn you as long as, in fact, when the Father looks at you, He can't even see you. When he looks at your heavenly record, if you've claimed Jesus as your Savior, what he will find is this. Um, oh, let's say, I'll take Russell. Russell. He's looking at Russell's record and he discovers that Russell was born in Bethlehem to a mother named Mary. That's what he discovered. And he lived for 33 years a perfect life. He, 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 he never sinned. Is this what he discovered? Is this what God sees for every one of us? He's got two billion little Jesuses that all live the same little 33-year life. That's not what he gets. That's what often taught, though. His record goes into our record. takes our place. Why is there no condemnation? Think about it medically. If you have cancer and you go into a scanner that can see the cancer... That's the law. The law is a diagnostic instrument to expose sin. That's what it was given for, the Ten Commandments. You look in the mirror to see it. It con- con- convicts, it exposes it. So you go in the MRI scanner, it exposes the cancer. Does the MRI scanner do anything to fix it? No. Does the Ten Commandments do anything to fix it? Do you, after come out of the scanner, you're convicted, you see the, the big tumor, you now know that you have cancer, you're convicted, you agree, the law has done its job. Do you now work really hard to do something to appease the scanner? Do <laughs> you do something really hard so that the scanner won't see it in you anymore? Maybe next time you get scanned, you have your brother get scanned in your place. <laughs> this is kind of all the things taught. No, what you do, the, the laws of the schoolmaster, the laws of diagnostics, expose us in to lead us to Christ. So that, I got what do I want? I, I got a cancer. What do you want? It? You want to go to the oncologist. You want to go to the physician who has the cure. And so you go to Christ. And the physician intervenes and puts the cancer into remission. remission. Now, do you need to destroy the MRI scanner? No, you don't need to destroy the law. And when the MRI scanner scans you again, what does it find? There's no cancer. It's gone. And this is why the law is written on the heart and mind. So we don't ever destroy the law. We have sin and rebelliousness destroyed in us, and the law of God is written within us. So this is... so. Why is there no condemnation then? Because when the law examines you, it's no longer your sinful self that lives, but Christ lives in you, and there's nothing left to condemn. That's why. So this is uh, Romans 8, 1 through 4 from the NIV. Therefore, there is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So law of sin and death, survival. I'm no longer controlled by survival drives. I'm no longer controlled by fear and selfishness. Now I have the law of love, which governs me. I have a new heart and right spirit. This is what it's saying. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in my heavenly record book. (laughs) No, in us. In us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. And so how I paraphrase that in the remedy Therefore, those who trust in Christ Jesus are no longer destined to die because through Christ Jesus' the law of love has cleansed and healed them from the law of selfishness and death. The written law was powerless to restore trust as it could merely diagnose the infection of distrust and selfishness pervading us all. God accomplished this restoration of his character of love in humans by sending his own son in human flesh to eradicate selfishness from humanity, reveal the truth about God, expose the lies of Satan, and reveal what happens when the infection of sin is not cured. And so he condemned the infection of selfishness as the destroying element in sinful humanity, in order that the law of love, the principle upon which life is based, might be fully restored in us, who no longer live according to the selfish desires, but in harmony with the spirit of love and truth. That's the plan. Restore us to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have given us a special end-time message to call people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, to creator worship, the, the, the designer, the sustainer whose laws govern all reality and away from this imperial Roman dictator, rulemaker, punishing false God construct that has infected the world. We pray now that your spirit will take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, yes. and, and cause us to become your righteousness on earth. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.